and welcome to the next episode of NatChat. Today we are joined by John Wood and Alex Hinchcliffe from Palo Alto Networks and we're going to be talking all around the latest security vulnerabilities with them. So hi guys, welcome to NatChat. Hi there, pleasure to be here. Hi guys. Brilliant. Um, And for our audience today, um, it might be best just actually to start off with a couple of intros. So Alex, do you want to tell all of our listeners who you are and what you do? Yeah, sure. So my name is Alex Hinchliffe. I'm a threat intelligence analyst with Unit 42, which is the threat uh, research team within Palo Alto Networks. Um, We've been here since um, the start of Palo Alto Networks, really. We weren't acquired in or anything. We were built from the ground up. And we started with the threat intelligence side. Um, I think we had about, at one point, about 18 or 20 odd members doing the threat intel work. Um, from all around the world. And this year, or I should say last year, we acquired a company called Cripsis that does in incident response. They're now Unit 42 Consulting. And so the two teams combined form Unit 42 today. And so that's the intelligence side on, on, one, on one part and the um, consultants and the incident response on the other. And as you can imagine, that feeds a really nice ecosystem of data um, because we have the threat intelligence that we produce empowering the incident responders as they work with clients who have been breached. And as we have those people working with breached clients, uh, they're feeding us data right from the from the front lines, if you like, about how victims have been breached, uh, with what tools, what the threat actors are doing, what their motivations are, uh, and all that kind of stuff. And that feeds into our intel and, and enriches it further. Um, beyond that, we have lots of products and, and customers that feed us telemetry. So we use a lot of that telemetry to understand the trends of what's happening. So how big a particular threat is in, within our customer base. Um, and finally, we do lots of partnerships uh, with law enforcement organizations, with national cyber security centers, um, various other governments and public sector organizations to try, if possible, to get positive outcomes from these cyber attacks. So making arrests. Um, disrupting networks and bringing down um, the bad actors, really. That's really interesting. And it's amazing that you guys obviously work so closely with almost like that next step, seeing that real impact of where that threat intelligence has come from. And and like we say, you know, putting the bad guys behind bars. Yeah. Thank you. And, And John, introduce us to yourself. Yeah, yeah. Hi, everyone. So my name's John Wood. I work for the systems engineering team at Palo Alto Networks. So I'm working uh, more on our technologies and products side, um, working with our major um, partners and customers uh, to make sure that everyone um, is able to use our technologies um, as effectively as possible. Brilliant. Thank you. And obviously, you know, we're recording this podcast in January 2022. And, you know, we saw and we're still seeing a little bit of an impact from a recent vulnerability that was put out there, the Log4j. And obviously, you guys would have had a lot of exposure and experience to this. Um, it would be great to get your take and insight on it. I don't know, John, if you might be able to put a bit of context into, you know, we, we call it a vulnerability. But what technically made this more vicious than some of the other threats we've seen? 
Yeah, that's a good question. So Log4j or, or Logforge is the name of um, the kind of effective software. Log4Shell is the name of the vulnerability that exploited that software. And to give you some background, uh, Logforge is an open source logging library um, provided by Apache Software Foundation. Now, many of your listeners will know that Apache Software Foundation provides Apache, the world's most popular open source web server. Um, and Log4j is a component of this and is very commonly implemented by other apps and services. So its function is to record events such as errors and output log messages for them uh, for administrators to review. Now, it's not a technology that people would use in isolation. You wouldn't necessarily take this off the shelf unless you're a developer. But it's commonly used as a component within other technologies. So logging is a standard part of almost all software, and Logforge is very widespread. Now, because it's not discrete software, although there's already a patch that's been made available, it's not so simple to assume that all vulnerable software would have incorporated that patch. So it's almost certain that a lot of systems out there will still remain vulnerable at this point in time. So the log4 shell is a remote code execution vulnerability, and it can potentially allow attackers to break into systems, steal passwords and sensitive data, and deploy malware. So it works because instructions like shellcode, for example, can be inserted into transactions, um, and they are then passed and executed by Logforge. So not only is the vulnerability very secure, but what makes things worse is that this attack needs very little expertise to exploit. It's already been seen in the wild. It's proliferating hugely. For example, in one day in December, we identified over 10 million hits against our threat signatures. So it's a perfect storm. NCSC, the UK's National Cybersecurity Centre, says that this is potentially the most severe computer vulnerability in years. Logforge has been given a CVSS severity score of 10, which is the highest possible. So corporate systems are naturally impacted like, really significantly, um, but other software is also affected. Minecraft, for example, the block building game, hugely popular amongst kids and adults, that was affected. Steam, a popular gaming platform on PCs, were shown to be vulnerable as well. So our advice for anyone who administrates a system, identify where Log4j is being used within your organization. That might mean working with suppliers if necessary. Check to make sure that software is patched. And that for any software that can't be patched, it's important to consider mitigations uh, where appropriate as well. I think it's really interesting, like you say, is it kind of has a universal um attack surface it shows no bias does it it's that one of those core building blocks of, of all systems and i'm sure alex you know within your role you saw it absolutely spread like like wildfire yes i mean that's the problem these days i think with um with software vulnerabilities that until they're patched or mitigated um they can just be you know taken over by anyone really um and especially if they're network facing or, or internet facing especially uh, you know to go one step further um, because it allows anyone, any threat actor, whether it's cybercrime or nation state, to effectively sit in the comfort of their own home, their own sofa, scan the internet, looking for victims, uh, looking for vulnerable systems and victims, and exploit them. It, it's so much easier than the traditional kind of create a phishing email, work on the social engineering technique, hope that the hope you get the right victim in the first place hope that that victim opens the email and clicks on the link that you've produced and all this stuff um it's just so much easier uh, for the attackers to leverage a software vulnerability especially when it's network based so yeah um to echo what john said it kind of kicked off around christmas time all these things do it's either a friday or christmas or a holiday that, that these things happen 
it's I December know, surprise. I don't know how this is still the case, but but they know how to hurt us basically as as network defenders. Um, so yeah, kind of kicking off. I think it was actually discovered and, and reported to Apache late uh, November, uh, and then kind of over the course of early to mid December, various things happened, um, such as there was the RCE that was the, uh, that was discovered. Uh, NIST published the CVE report about it being critical. And then Apache, you know, from mid-December through to uh, early December through to mid-December were updating their software and pushing out patches. I think what made this one slightly more cumbersome and confusing to deal with was that Apache had to release multiple updates. Um, so at first they made a patch update, then second they removed this logging feature completely. Then there was a, a denial of service attack found within the fix that they'd done. Uh, and although it wasn't as uh, critical or severe for the victim to be exploited with that, um, it still was problematic. So I think in the end, there were four, maybe five versions of Apache that were and Log4j updates that were made. And so for a system administrator, the, the nightmare is, you know, do we have this software in our network? How do we find it? How do we how do we patch it? And then as soon as they've done that, they have to then figure out, you know, go through that again and patch it again. So um, it definitely wasn't the the simplest of, of, of fixes to deal with. And in terms of the attackers that we saw using it, I think um, most were opportunistic, you know, cybercrime actors. So people scanning it to um, drop and install bots for botnets, uh, crypto miners to try and mine cryptocurrency and make some money for the actors. Um, there were reports of nation state adversaries taking taking advantage of it as well. But I think what's clear is, and my, my prediction is, our prediction is that we this will be here for years to come because some of the mainstream software has been identified that uses Log4j, like the, all the Apache stuff. And I think we listed um, on one of our blogs that there was Apache Struts, uh, Flink, Elasticsearch, Apache Dubo, Logstash, just a whole bunch of uh, applications that, that were vulnerable. Um, and I think also... The easiest target was for HTTP scanning. So any of those applications listening on port 80 that were easily scannable, easily identifiable, and thus easily exploitable were the low-hanging fruit targets. But actually, if you've got some weird bespoke application running on the network that happens to have implemented Log4j, it's really only a matter of time for threat actors to discover that and work out ways to get to that. That, that, that we'll probably see another round of uh, exploitation happening as well. So I think this one's going to be with us for a while. Um, I think the yeah. one positive thing, sorry I, to interrupt, I think the one positive thing was that there was a really big collective response from the industry on this, especially considering the time of year. I think, you know, all the NCSCs, as John pointed out, all the CERTs, all the CSEs of the world, those organisations published information about this. Um, and there was a kind of call to action collectively around the world to try and patch as many systems as possible and, and do other stuff. So I think although the numbers we saw were high, like 10 million on a day, and that's just for our customers running our, our threat prevention software, um, I think the potential for it to have been much worse uh, was also there. So that, that's a positive, at least. 
I completely agree. And it's it's so interesting hearing you talk about actually the evolution and the fact that, you know, we're not out of the woods yet and there is still that possibility of it to kind of go into the next phase. But seeing that camaraderie between you know, this, the cyber professionals of the world to, to kind of band together and share knowledge and, and insight is fantastic. Um, you mentioned so many different styles of threat as well. And, and you know, we can't necessarily pinpoint or predict exactly what is going to be the next one. Um, we, you know, no one has a crystal ball. But is there anything where you're seeing actually a popularity in a style of trend emerge? Is there something which, you know, are we going to see that the most damaging threats moving forward will take a similar build to um, like Log4j and the Logshell attack? Um, yeah, I think so. So we've got a few um, issues at the moment with that. I guess we're dealing with that you could call issues. Uh, one is ransomware. Um, and every time I mention this and talk to customers about it or talk to the world about it on podcasts or, or conference talks, I always feel a bit strange because we've been talking about ransomware for years and it's just evolved over time, but it has been with us for so long. Um, and it's almost at the point where you're literally beating the dead horse to talk, talk about it again. And the main evolutions are that um, the attacks now seem to be more targeted um, or at least targeted against businesses in the hope that if they hold an entire business to ransom, they can ask for more money. Um, and the likelihood is that if they've impacted the business operations, the the victim is more likely to pay just because they they need to get back up and running to to serve their customers and clients. Um, so that's definitely a shift. One another is that we've seen a lot more double extortion technique being used by ransomware actors. So they uh, before they encrypt the data, they steal it uh, and then they threaten to publish it on a blame and shame website or leak website on the dark web. And that, again, adds more leverage and pressure on the victim organization to pay up so their data and their blueprints, their patents, their PII, whatever it might be, is not exposed um, to anyone on, on the Internet or the dark web. Um, what has also fueled this kind of rise of ransomware are two things. One is the use of software vulnerabilities, just like we talked about with Log4Shell. So there are ransomware actors that almost exclusively leverage um, software vulnerabilities in order to breach the network and then get in and deploy their ransomware. Um, so that's one. And the, the second is the ransomware as a service model, which is where you have a bunch of operators who are the people who develop the ransomware software. They're the people that uh, maintain the infrastructure for the leak website. They may also deal with the funding and maybe even the money laundering um, of cryptocurrency. Uh, and all those other services. And effectively, you could have anyone come along, even with the most basic ICT skills, as long as they've got some money, they can pay to be an affiliate, they can get the ransomware, they can get access to a network somehow, either through themselves or through another service, and then they can deploy the ransomware and make a lot of money. So that ransomware as a service model has definitely helped to fuel that, uh, that ecosystem. Yes, and it does sound like something a little bit out of a horror story, doesn't it, sometimes? Um, but it, it's not, like we said before, it's not all doom and gloom. There are there are good guys out there. There are solutions out there which are, which are built to kind of help protect. And, John, I don't know, 
for our listeners, if there was like one thing or a couple of things to, to take away from what we discussed today on on some tips or first mover steps to really protect yourself or increase your security posture against some of these types of threats, what would you recommend? Yeah, that's a good, that's a good question. And I think if I was to highlight one thing, one takeaway um, to, to just go and do, there's, there's actually something that's, that's really important um, and really easy and cost-effective, uh, a way that you can increase security posture, make sure that your current cybersecurity technology is correctly patched uh, and configured against you know, vendor pre- best practice recommendations. So Gartner did some research um, which suggested that 99% of breaches occur because of firewall misconfiguration. I mean, that's an absolutely incredible figure, and it shows that there's a huge number of missed opportunities out there where an organization has had the tools in place to block an attack um, but was unable to regardless. Um, and the fact of the matter is firewall configuration isn't static. Changes to rules are requested all the time in, in most business environments. And if a rigorous policy uh, change control process isn't followed, you know, that leads to the device becoming more open and less secure over time. So it's important to regularly review configuration, treat best practice config- config- configurations as a compliance requirement. Um, many firewall vendors offer tools to help. Palo Alto Networks has a process called a best practice assessment. And basically, we recommend that it's performed on a six-month cycle. The Tillich are able to offer this service to their customers for free. Um, and basically, what it will involve is, is taking a look at the configuration, the policy of a firewall, tracking it over time so that we can actually properly profile how that firewall kind of drifts from its kind of best practice state, and then offer recommendations in terms of how to configure that firewall more effectively. And that could mean things like um, implementing a a proper application-based policy to avoid holes being present in uh, through which attacks can can fester. Um, It means potentially switching on um, SSL decryption, um, configuring various features to really map against what we think the, the kind of best stance of that device and, and to provide the best likelihood um, that that you know network security infrastructure is going to protect the organization when the time comes for it to be used um, so it really make, makes sense to you know to make sure that your firewall is properly configured um, able to perform as expected um, and we're here and we're able to help you get to that place yeah I think it's really that interesting important as well you said that doing it on like a six monthly cadence review and it's not just that annual annual review you sometimes get it is something which needs to be looked at more regularly and 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 checked in with really yeah it's 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 often the kind of thought that you know once a firewall is there and configured and a policy is put on it then then that's it it's kind of a fire and forget type approach but the reality is that you know as i said these things aren't static they do change over time um and um, yeah, con- configuration that may be configured when the box is deployed may be perfectly legitimate. There, there may be software updates that need to be applied. Better, you know, better versions of software, new features perhaps might 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 be there that will um, help to uh, provide additional functionalities, um, as well as that kind of slip of configuration that um, can lead to that box potentially becoming less secure. Thank you so much. And thank you to both of you for joining us today. It's been really interesting and like 
really insightful to hear from your side and Alex, especially from the Unit 42 side, of just what makes up the vulnerabilities and what people should be thinking about for 2022. So thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.